Hey everybody, this is Brent Watkinson with Everyday Artist. This episode is part two of my interview with George Pratt. And if you're intrigued with this conversation, please be sure and listen to part one that has a detailed introduction. And as always, you can see images of George's work and a link to his website on my personal website, brentwatkinson.com, and click on that podcast icon, and you will be swept away to the complete archive of all of the Everyday Artist podcasts, just as you would be if you subscribe for free on whatever device you like to listen, and just about any platform, including iTunes, Buzzsprout, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. Just do a search for Everyday Artist and you can easily find it. All right, on to part two with George Pratt. Let's get into it. George, I really like to watch you work, and I really like to watch you start images, no matter what it is, whether it's pen and ink or a painting, a pastel drawing, because you start with this really energetic abstraction and then you kind of hone in on something well I should let you explain it but the moral of my question is your images no matter what medium always have this wonderful legacy or a history about them maybe archaeology about them with the different layers now is that something intentional or did you learn that from someone I think it was uh, just a natural byproduct with the process but ever since um <clears throat> you know working with the the illustration academy and you brought that up many times and so then it became this thing in my head <laughs> i was probably doing i was totally doing it unconsciously it just came out of the process but after you talked about uh this idea of legacy and the in the art and like archaeology and that there's this history to how things lay, get layered and and un, you know uh, and covered up and whatever and that really did start becoming something in my head you know and it was um, and I I've, I have always sort of believed like even if I cover it up it still affects things you know whether you can see it or not although I think in little ways it it shows itself you know. Um, but yeah, it's not it, it's not a hundred percent conscious uh, effort in that way. It's just sort of a byproduct in a lot of ways. But it sure looks fun. Is it entertainment to yourself when you do that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's funny. Is I think it's what makes me not a very good illustrator because illustration they want to know what they're getting, and I don't want to know what I'm going to get. <laughs> you know, it's like. I want, I want to be as surprised as anyone else when I'm working on something. I want to, it's all about discovery and it's, and it's the journey. And I mean, I can do, you know, a sketch that gives a really good, I mean, it gives a, a very good indication or, you know, what's actually going to be in the piece. Okay. There's a figure it's doing this kind of a pose and it's, you know, that kind of thing. When they ask for color studies is when I sort of balk because I really hate to be, trapped by that you know like it it doesn't allow the piece to kind of go where it needs to go so i try to uh the comic book 
companies are always really cool about that. Like I don't have to do color studies and generally like only for covers have I actually had to do uh, sketches. Uh, the storytelling and the continuity, they've just, they've just let me alone, which is nice, you know, but when I've done work outside of comics, they, you know, they want to do that traditional pipeline where, you know, you have ideation, you show them the sketches, uh, they want a tight sketch after that, if they pick one and then they want a color study and it's just like, oh my God, you know, the reason I, I got away from all that is because I, I just I felt trapped by it. By the time I got to sit down and do the finish, I was already worn out. I'd already done it five times, you know, (laughs) and, and it sucks. It's like, they just, they just suck the life out of everything. And it's, uh, I remember Jeff Jones talking about that, you know, um, that, you know, why do they, why do they need three sketches? (laughs) You know, like why three? And Jeff was like, you know, well, they want to feel like they are actually part of the creative process when they're not, you know, it's like, and he said he got to the point where it was like, he would just bring in a finished painting and go, Oh, and they're like, Oh, I thought you're going to bring sketches in. Oh, Oh, well, but I, but I have this. And it's like, Oh yeah. And they're, of course they were blown away by it and they took it. But he was like, you know, he hated doing that same thing. It's like, what's the point? You know, if you don't trust the person to do a good job, you don't like their work. Why are you hiring them? You know? I can see why, obviously, after having taught at the academy, I can see the benefits of the process, right? Ideation. And I do that stuff. I mean, I do ideation and, you know, and I do thumbnails, compositional studies, but they're not like finished drawings or anything. They're not really tight. It's like pieces on a chessboard, you know, that I'm moving around just to get a, a sense of the space or the, of the, you know, just the composition and the storytelling. But all the other stuff, because I'll go from that to photo reference, then I'll go shoot my reference, right? And then from the reference, I'll just dive in and, and make it happen. Because, But again, it's like I don't want to sit down and, and do a bunch of drawings from that reference and then transfer them and then start painting. You know, it just, again, that, that, uh, that sense of spontaneity and uh, discovery is what keeps me actually interested because I just bore way too quickly. But that said, you know, as a teacher, I, I push my students to do the process because they, I, they do need that, that uh, structure, you know, the, the clarity that that brings because they really, they don't explore composition. They don't explore, you know, their, their drawing chops and their tonal studies and stuff like that, or even color and, and color which I'm really, that's going to be really cool to talk to you about because you, you really know color and my students, it's like so elusive. And I think I'm like the worst person in the world to teach anybody color, you know, because I don't always know why I did what I did. It's just felt right. And, but the students, I can't get them to go actually just like, man, you know, go out and look at painters, you know, call up pieces by whoever that is sort of in the general direction or maybe it's the exact color scheme you want to use for for a certain painting as long as it's you know uh the right mood and and it actually you know you know can't take a night painting and turn it into a day painting and expect that to work for you you know but of course the the 
the disconnect there is they don't know any painters. They don't know any illustrators. It's like it's the, it's the weirdest thing. They don't know these artists. And so half of my half of my job is is just turning them on to different people who they actually should already know, you know, but um, getting them to like dig into these illustrators and painters and look at, you know, all this amazing work, this history that they can draw from. Um, because so many of the of their solutions that they're struggling to, you know, problems that they're struggling to solve have already been solved a million times, you know. Well, uh, you, you and I had, I will call a true advantage when we were going to school. And to all the younglings out there, yes, George and I went to college long before the Internet. But we had this yep. amazing place called a library. So <laughs> I didn't know a lot of painters or illustrators, but... I went to the library and I thought, oh, I'm here's an art book. Look at the, who's this who's this person. So yeah. I would look through there and, and think, wow, these are really great paintings. Make a mental note of it. Put the book on the shelf. Wait a minute. Here's another amazing painter right next to this amazing painter. So yeah. so it was right there in front of us. And we didn't have to, quote, do a Google search for amazing painters. Uh, it was, it was all in the <laughs> library with these books just stacked up next to each other, lined up. And that was, I think a, a really good way to, to be able to peruse and explore. And you and I love technology. Uh, I think mm-hmm. anybody that knows us knows that you and I are the biggest techno nerds on earth. <laughs> But there's something to be said for uh, the way a library functions, and it still functions that way. Mm-hmm. And, and I think sometimes Google is a disadvantage. I use it all the time. I overuse it. But I always tell my students, your best source of information is not the Internet. It's people. If, if somebody yeah. wants to know a good painter, go ask George. Go ask their teacher, talk, you know, talk to people about what you like and they will give you that fantastic list of five people to start with. Absolutely. Well, and that's the thing, you know, the Internet, it's I always tell students, it's it's like it's incredibly deceptive because if you don't know the name, how are you going to find it? Exactly. You know what I mean? And even if you know the name, the Internet is actually. As, as, as cool as it, as it is and as much information is out there, it's also in a lot of other ways a wasteland because, you know, you go look up, you know, I always tell you, go look up at Har- go look up Harvey Dunn. There's very little of Harvey Dunn on the Internet, and that's weird to me. But when you go to a book on a particular artist or even one of these, these massive tomes that's sort of, you know, like a history of Impressionism or whatever, you know, you're going to discover, yeah, you're going to see all these amazing you know, let's say you go to a Harvey Dunn book, you're going to see Harvey Dunn out the wazoo, which is great, but you're also going to see who influenced Harvey Dunn, you know? And then if you go and look that person up, you look out, you find who influenced that person and what was their, what was their lineage, you know, uh, artistic lineage. And, and you can't beat that, but everybody is like looking at the same stuff over and over and over again. And they're all drawing from the same well, instead of going back and looking at, the people that inspired the people that inspired the people that inspired those guys. Exactly. And I had a, <laughs> I had a student 
one time that, uh, and I love students, believe me, I, I like hanging around with students because they teach me a lot. Yeah. Sometimes I, I feel guilty uh, by, you know, getting so much information from them. But some, some student was talking about um, the uh, guitar player for Pearl Jam and how he had invented this grunge guitar and how brilliant he was. And I said, yes, he was brilliant. However, let's go back a couple of years. And you know, there was a guy by the name of Stevie Ray Vaughan. That was kind of grungy. <laughs> and he's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Stevie Ray Vaughan. Awesome. Yeah. So he, he did it. And then, you know, Pearl Jam picked up on it. And I said, well, you know, before Stevie, there, <laughs> there was this guy by the name of Jimi Hendrix and he was pretty grungy and nasty on that guitar. Oh yeah. Yeah. Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. 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 Jimmy and then Steve and then, you know, whatever. And I, and then I went back no more James and go, uh, yeah, I, going I know I said, what about when Les Paul was sitting around and he had that loose tube in his amplifier and it was fuzzy and buzzing. I mean, that really, to me was the first grunge guitar. So you gotta, yeah. you have to constantly go back because nobody invented something in isolation. Yeah. Out of whole cloth. It's like, no, I guess that's, the, that's a big difference. Uh, you and I have talked about this a million times, you know, that when we grew up, there was very little, you know, although there was a lot, but there was very little in the way of, you know, I'm, I, helpful direction and stuff like that. But so we had to like basically become explorers, you know, and it was all about the the thrill of the hunt. And when you found something, you know, you almost felt like you invented it because, or you discovered it because like, holy shit, look at this. No one knew this existed. You know, <laughs> of course everybody did, but you didn't know, you know? And so that, that thrill of coming across something and it wasn't like an accident. We were looking for it. You know what I mean? <laughs> you yes, know, we were we actually, were, we were hungry. Yes. Thirsty yeah, for it. We were digging. <clears throat> That's a big deal, you know, and that is something that the internet has, destroyed in a lot of ways because it's all offered up on a silver platter and they they take it for granted that it's there and what's and see that was the thing like man you know you can't judge the past by the present blah 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 but can you imagine what we would have done if they had dropped the internet in our lap you know <laughs> it's like and it was fully realized i mean we would have been like oh they would have they would have had to you know pry me from the computer because I would have been digging for all these people you know I would all have, this uh, stuff my friend Gene and I would have made gunpowder like years sooner than we figured it out at the library right that, <laughs> yeah exactly you know we found the formula yeah. for gunpowder and we were we had fun after that yeah well <laughs> then I remember making smoke smoke bombs with salt, Peter and sugar, you know, it's like, but yeah, it's like, but this idea of, you know, digging for something and that, that feeling of like success when you like find something, you know, because you were out there looking for it. That's something that, uh, to me, it seems as a teacher has been lost. Uh, I don't see them doing that you know and uh and it's it's actually upsetting you know because they just don't know anything and i, I get it they're students but shit i knew stuff you well, know when it, i went to art school on the, <laughs> exactly and on the same vein now and, and people are i hope people aren't turning this off thinking we're a 
bunch of, you know, crusty old men that are griping yes. about the new generation. We're not doing that. We're drawing no. conclusions. And you and I, as educators, are trying to figure out how we can take these thoughts and information and turn it into something positive and teach more effectively with it. And I tell students all the time, there's a difference between being a passive student and an active mm -hmm. student. And the active students, you know practically who they are when they walk into the room. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's it, too. I mean, I mean, the school I went to, I went to uh, Pratt Institute. Well, I'll, and I'll jump back in here and say a student can be a 40 year old working professional. If you can, you still yeah. have to be an active student, not a 20 year old. Well, and Hey, you know, I'm still an active student. You know, it's like you very Mark, much are. Mark English is still an active student. You're still an active. We're, you know what I mean? That, which was, was, I think was the, uh, part of the glue that hold that holds us all together. You know, the, that everybody's, that's what was so refreshing and amazing to see, you know, as, uh, when, when we all got together, you know, what do but, you think about mm -hmm. the word of what, what do you think about the word curious or curiosity? Do you think that's important? Absolutely. It's vital. I mean, if you're not curious, it goes back, you know, it's like if you can, if you're just going to do what you can do, well, I mean, that's fine, you know, and, and, uh, you do see that in, uh, in comic book artists that, you know, they, and I'm not knocking it, you know, it's like, there's a, there's a big part of me that's incredibly envious of it. This idea that <clears throat> they're thrilled with what they're doing and they do it over and over and over and over. And, uh, and it must be nice. I don't have that in me, you know, but I think that, yeah, you have to be curious. You have to want to grow <clears throat> and, and keep moving forward. Um, otherwise, you, you know, complacency is to me is like is death, you know, why do you, uh, I just, yeah, I don't get it. Um, but curiosity is everything, you know, um, so much of what I'm doing, you know, unless I'm doing uh, a sequential thing, which is about the content, right. It's about the story. It's in service to the content. Um, it's the other, the, the paintings and stuff, I may have a certain uh, image that I really want to do. Um, but generally the, the content is a, is a vehicle for a dialogue with the medium, with the media. And I don't have any kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, preordained, you know, thing in my head about where this thing is going to go. I want to, I want to see what happens. You know, it's all about seeing what happens. If I, you know, if I throw this stuff down, what happens? You know, how, that, how do you recognize when something is happening? How do you tell the difference between a mess and when you're getting close? Um, I honestly don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a gut, it's a gut reaction. That, does, it, uh, does, does it happen on every painting? Do you always no. just kind of, okay. No, there are paintings where, you know, I mean, well, you know, I mean, as a, as an illustrator, I know, and it took me years to get to this place, but I know I can, I can take something that's going to shit really badly. <laughs> right. And I, and it, and it just, 
I, and I can either go back to drawing, I can go back to tone, you know, value, I can go back to color. I can take it back to any one of these different areas, right, and fix it if it's just about making a nice looking piece, right? I can, and that's the beauty of painting is that you can just cover up everything, right? You can just fix it. And, and I have a, there is a gut sense of that in me for any piece where I'm like, okay, you know, I mean, if it was just about making a nice piece, okay, well, I can like, I can go back to drawing, I can fix the drawing, I can fix the, the color, the temperature shifts, whatever. And, and, I, and if I spend enough time with it, I can fix it. And some pieces I'll, I, I actually weigh that, like, is it worth doing? But nine times out of 10, it's like, I get this gut reaction. It's like, I just, I'm going to do another one, you know, and scrape it off and just do a whole nother one. See, I think that's very important because I call that rabies. Like sometimes a piece just has rabies and you're not going <laughs> to fix it. You just need to put it down and move on with your life. And, uh, yeah. the, the, uh, the painter Titian always uh -huh. said any, well, he didn't, I don't know if he said it, but it has been written that Titian remarked any painting will paint itself if you turn it to the wall long enough. And I think mm. that's, that's pretty true. But as illustrators, cool. you don't have time to do that. Yeah. You just got to kill it and move on. Right. And you know, and I can think of a lot of times where I was beating my head against the wall on a piece, you know, and it, and it finally sort of coalesced for me. Um, well, and it's weird. It's, it's not consistent either. I mean, there were like the enemy ace paperback cover. Uh, I had a very specific idea of where I wanted that to go. Started painting on it. And this is the DC, uh, paperback cover not the Warner brothers thing, but like I had a very specific idea of that, which was sort of based on a Harvey Dunn painting color wise and stuff. And, and man, that thing went South real fast. <laughs> and like, and I remember just like, Oh, you know, and, and it was just, it really wasn't working. And I was like at my wits end. Cause it was also coming up. The deadline was uh, approaching. And I remember taking out a tube of, um, and this was like one of those, like, you know, wake up moments, you know, like where you're kind of like, Oh wow. You know, like, but through, through no, uh, you know, uh, like I wasn't pulling strings, you know what I mean? Like I wasn't making it happen. You know, it was a, it was a total blunder. The, the only thing I did was actually take, take the, out of, out of anger and frustration, take a tube of rose, uh, gray from Holbein. And I literally squeezed it over that painting. <laughs> I was so pissed off. And, oh, none of and, us have ever I, done anything like that, George. You're right? alone. And and then just started attacking this thing and just smearing this shit everywhere, you know? And uh, and I think I squeezed something else on there, probably the the Holbein blue-gray. And, man, alchemy, you know? Like, st stuff just started happening. Uh. And it was like, oh, cool, because I wasn't trying to preserve it at that point. You know what I mean? I wasn't trying to hold on to the things that I thought worked anymore. I was so fed up that I didn't care what happened to it. I was actually it was it was this act of like it was actually an act of destruction to get my frustration out. Yeah, but to make yourself feel it. better. 
yeah and it fixed it and that was like the first sort of glimmer of like oh okay and and it was a lesson that uh baron story had tried to impart to us you know quit quit treating it like it's this little gem you know if you're not yeah uh I've I've heard you use the word precious like you you yeah. for a while you thought oh this precious thing that I'm coddling along and then you thought okay I've had it you destroyed it or tried to and that's where this new life of this image comes from yeah and it was totally you know I mean it was it was the uh, the art gods were smiling you know <laughs> down because it wasn't through like intelligence or skill or any of those things, you know what I mean? It was like sheer luck, <laughs> you know? And it was that, again, it was that give yourself permission to go off, you know, to go, to go out there and just go nuts, you know, giving yourself permission. And it's like Baron said, uh, you have to be willing to destroy. If you're not willing to destroy it, to make it better, then what's the point? You know what I mean? It's like, you're, then you're just being precious. And Scott Hampton <laughs> had to hold it. Yeah, yeah, you have to be willing to kill your babies. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> but it's true, and you have to give yourself permission to fail. Fail. Yeah, yeah, to fail for many years. That was a big lesson. Yes, yeah, I and I think at some point we've all figured, not maybe not figured it out, but just gotten so upset in our studio because. I own studio rants. That's my territory. I, I, <laughs> and hey, I, wait a minute. I'll go toe to toe with you on that. <laughs> but for many years, I worked either for Mark English or with Mark English, whatever it was. I mean, we're talking many, many years. And one of my important jobs that I really liked was emptying his trash can. Because even when I didn't work for him anymore, I would empty his yeah. trash can. And that trash can was full all of the time. And I remember. Did you salvage? I didn't think that would be ethical. Uh, <laughs> because I would be. ethical. Oh, I. Salvage. <laughs> I'm an idiot. I look back and I think, oh my gosh. But I would pull this stuff out and, you know, he wouldn't wad it up or whatever. He'd be working on you know, a, an illustration mm -hmm. or a painting or whatever. And he would get to a point, and in, as my term came out a while ago, rabies. He would just look at this and he'd think, okay, I've invested 20 minutes or an hour or whatever it is. This is not mm -hmm. working. I'm going to jettison this. Moving on. I'm going to start over. And he would just like take it and pull it off the board and throw it in the trash can. And to me, I would look at it and think, oh my gosh, I hope that I can do that by the time I, <laughs> yeah, by the time I'm I dead. wish I could screw up like that. Yeah. Yeah. But he really kept a full trash can. And I think that's a really important lesson because there's a fine line because if you gave up on that painting, you just described when you squirted those tubes of paint, if you gave up too soon, you would have never had that seminal experience. Right. Yeah. But you know, you got lucky that day. You kept, like you said, beating your head against the wall and it turned out. Uh, but you know, Mark and all these other great illustrators and artists that we love and admire so much, they have made bad decisions so many times they know how to avoid them a lot. And yeah. that's a trick. Well, and that, you know, a big chunk of this is 
also why I enjoy being a teacher is that uh, when I was in school, um, especially when I switched to fine art uh, from illustration, uh, of not being taught anything, you know? And it was funny, just uh, right now in town here at uh, the Southern Atelier, Wait a Steven, minute, back up, back up. Tell us where you are. Some people may not know. Oh, in uh, Sarasota, Florida. Um, the Southern Atelier is uh, run by uh, Charles Miano, and it's separate from the Ringling School. It's it's an atelier uh, by itself, and <clears throat> he has uh, Stephen Asale is here now, and he, like, invited James Martin and I to go out to dinner the other night and meet him and stuff. I was like, cool, you know. And so we went to this like uh, seafood place and, and it was great. I mean, one, he, uh, sale was talking about, you know, his comic book collection and stuff and his original art collection, which has a lot of comic book stuff in it. And he knows his stuff. We were like getting, getting into it. And he went to Pratt at least a couple or three or four years before I did. And, he also went through the fine art department and, we, and that was the great thing. We both were like, I was like, Oh yeah. Did you have so-and-so? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, Oh yeah. You remember him reading a newspaper and not teaching? Yes. <laughs> you know? And, and we were like, yeah. And we were like, you know, you're spending a shit ton of money and you weren't learning anything. They weren't teaching you anything. And so any painting chops that I got was because I figured it out. You know what I mean? We had to figure it out because they weren't helping us figure it out. They weren't giving us any clues. And, you know, and it was, you know, Kent and I going out in landscape painting and, and meeting Jeff and all that, that, which we discussed before. And it's, you know, and so there's this, God, you know, it's just like, why does it, it to quote Kennison, why does it have to be an Easter egg hunt? You know, and it shouldn't be. None of this stuff is our secrets. You know what I mean? It's all there, and the, and the teacher should have been saying, "Here's how you do it." You know, that doesn't make you an artist. What makes you, what makes you an artist is what you do with it. You know, with that knowledge and where you go with it, and what you want to say with it, and whatever. But the skills are the skills. You know, and it was just cool to to meet someone that like had the very same exact experience of like, wow, uh, I just got to figure this out. You know. And it's that goes back to that curiosity thing and that that idea that, you know, you just struggle through it and you and the only way to get it is to is to just put your ass in the in the chair in front of an easel and paint and paint and paint and paint, you know, um, and hope that you meet other people that can give you some insights beyond what you're discovering, you know, because half the half that battle, too, is recognizing something when it happens because some a lot of times you I hell I may have done that same thing several other times before I actually noticed that it worked you know um and cataloging that and saying oh oh okay oh that oh if I do that that's what happens okay you know and put it in your bag you know of tools so it's just a wacky thing that school <laughs> School's about learning and the, the instructors who are preserving their 
you know, oh, I don't want, uh, they give you enough to hang yourself with. That's not teaching, you know, because they're trying to preserve this thing they think they invented or that they think is integral to their thing. And why should I be teaching people who are going to put me out of my own job kind of mentality? That's not teaching, you know, and I had a lot of that. Well, George, you and I went through similar experiences. I went to a small state school. You went to a big time art school and I did have some good teachers. And then I had the other kind of teachers that we would walk into a painting class and they'd say, Hey, it's 10 o'clock start painting. And I didn't learn anything. There was no real information. The good teachers. And I think this is what you and I do. I, I think, I mean, I know I do it and I know you do it. And that is we say, okay, everybody come over here. Let me show you some things that I know work. They work every time. If you want to call it a formula, go ahead. But I'm going to show you a thing that works in whatever we're doing. Yep. And then you can modify that and build on that or what have you, because that I think is really an important idea. And there's a, uh, and when I teach, especially when I do demonstrations, there's an old business meeting saying, when you have a business meeting, number one, tell them what you're going to tell them. Number two, tell them. And number three, tell them what you told them. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's what I do in class. I'll say, here's what I'm going to do. And then I do it. And then I say, here's what I did. And it kind mm -hmm. of, and it, again, it, may be formulaic, but there's a difference between doing something or being in a practice of an industry. And we're talking about illustration and painting, but teaching has to be in my mind, you kind of lay out these linear steps so you can help people go through it. And if there's five mm -hmm. steps, then you get five chances to help and to guide and to point people in the right direction. And I think mm -hmm. that's really important. Absolutely. And, and one of the biggest things that I see that is a, that hurts students in my classes is they don't do enough of it for it to stick. You know what I mean? It's like, like I'll do demos and, and, and point out those steps. And then, and, and they'll start painting and they'll blow off one or two steps. And then it's like, well, wait a minute. And you, and you reinforce it. No, no, no. You have to go through this thing. You have to make sure, you know, like, uh, you know, your ground is really a, a middle ground, blah, 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 and walk through it again. And they, and, but because when they leave the, and not all of them, obviously, you know, but when they leave the classroom, they don't do it again until they come back to class. And, it's just like, uh, that's just like working out, you know, if you work out and you don't work out for three days, the first workout was pointless because you just lost all that momentum, you know, that whatever you built is gone already. And, and that's the thing. It's like, it's not on their mind because they're not doing it enough. So it never, there's a large chunk of it doesn't stick. And that's really frustrating, you know, because they're just for whatever reason, they're not sitting at home doing it, which is weird to me. You know, I think it's pretty common knowledge that 
let, let's say someone wants to learn how to play violin. Okay. Never played violin before. All right. Do you think you will get to be a better violin player by playing one hour a day, seven days a week or practicing six hours or seven hours straight on Saturday? I think it's that repetition of doing it every day, every day, mm-hmm. every day. Yeah. It's the same thing with sketchbook, drawing, painting, musicians, writing, dancing. You you said yeah. working out. I, I agree. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, even in class, you know, um, um, and I've, I've actually opened it up a bit more than I used to. Uh, we're actually doing longer paintings now, you know, longer poses, but I would always do a lot of short poses. Um, like 20 minutes would be like, the longest we would do maybe 30 minutes or uh at most it would have been an hour for for paintings you know drawings i never even went to an hour it's like no come on we got to move on and and they would complain you know which i get but i i really believe the more you do the better you're going to get and like you can sit like as scott ampton says you know and polish a turd but i don't think you learn as much from that as you do like recognizing in the shorter things, like what's screwed up. And then you go to the next painting. It's like, okay, let's build on that. Bah, 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 bah. Okay. Okay. You know, just keep going and producing, you know, producing a shit ton of stuff. I think that's more important. And cause the, the, you know, the more failures, the more you learn, you know, I think but, it's, uh, it's, it's easier to finish a piece of work than it is to start and get halfway through a piece of work. And mm-hmm. that's what you're teaching. I think is, Let's do a bunch of starts. Let's get the ball yeah. rolling. Let's get, even if you only get halfway through, that's better than, like you said, spending an hour and waste, wasting 40 minutes of it. There are things that I think that every student should be able to do. Of course, not every student can do it. But, you know, is this idea like like a master copy. And really, like I tell students I want forgeries, you know what I mean? within reason, you know, or even like the model and the stand there, you know, you, by the time you get out of school, especially you should be able to look at anything and, and, and be able to copy it. You know what I mean? That should be like the baseline, (laughs) you know, like what you can do when you get out. But it's amazing to me, the people that can't, you know, like their drawing suffers or they, they just can't, they just can't even sit and mix those colors that's that are right in front of them that they could actually like put a piece of acetate over the painting and like in the book and like touch it and look at it and go, yeah, no, that's not the right color. And, you know, and have a grid or, or even Lucy the image up and then paint it. You know I mean? It's like, there are certain things that should be almost no brainers of just because it's all it is, is time. I want to clarify what you and I are actually doing here. Maybe soften this conversation a little bit. It right now, yeah. it sounds like we are kind of, grumpy but we're frustrated <laughs> and I am frustrated. we are we are observing what really good students do and we are talking about what the students that aren't doing as well don't do and we all have really great students and they all yeah. they all have the same habits because they just work all the time and they ask questions and they're curious and they explore 
and they mm-hmm. show us things before class, after class, whatever. Yep. But then the people that just don't put in the work are the ones we're talking about. And, and we are sympathetic and empathetic with them because we want them to be better artists and we want them yeah. to experience all these great, fantastic joys that come along with being an artist. And when we see people that really don't try, then we do our best to see if it's in their best interest to keep digging and, and still make this maybe their, their career or their artistic life. Yeah. Well, and that's, that is to me that the the last thing you said is the most important, the artistic life, because the career is going to have, it's ups and downs and it's ins and outs and whatever, you know, and, and maybe shifts, but that the, the long haul is most important. You know, uh, wh- how, what do you get out of that and how do you, you know, you want it to be not just a struggle, you know, you want to be able to enjoy it and appreciate what you're doing and, and find joy in it and all that kind of stuff, even though even that's going to be up and down too, but it's about the long haul. You know, Um, and it's funny when you, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, and, and school is a wonderful place and you and I would be in school all of our life for the rest of our life if we could, but school is fraught with, uh, social things Mm -hmm. that go on, political things that go on. Um, I, I know that sometimes people come into class and they're just not in the right mental place to, sure hear information or execute what they're working on and that, but they're forced to because, Hey, it's, Mm -hmm. it's time here. You, you have to perform, you have to do this. And as, um, adults practicing whatever we do, sometimes we can soften that a little bit. So I, I understand that being a student can be very difficult at times. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and all the things that you talked about, those the, that doesn't change when you are not a student. You know, social, political uh, life gets in the way, you know. Um, and, yeah, you, all that, you have to take all that into account. Um, and when you were talking about, you know, uh, one hour a day as opposed to six on Saturday, I thought you were going, also going to the place of the, the 10,000 hours thing, you know, that – you know, it's, you'll have people talking about prodigies and whatnot. And it's like, at least I think they have disproven this prodigy idea because it's like Jimi Hendrix slept with his guitar. He was playing it constantly. Uh, Bobby Fisher was playing chess all the time. You know, it's like you have to put the time in, you know, and as a kid, that's what, man, I mean, I think, I mean, I had, I had a great childhood. I mean, I, you know, I played sports. Uh, I was a horrible student, though. I was a horrible, I hated school because I wanted to, I just wanted to sit and draw. And um, if you, if you were looking for me and I wasn't on the baseball field or running track, I was drawing or I was making a movie or something, you know, it was like, or writing. It was constantly that I was a total wallflower except for the, the sports stuff. You know, when I got to art school, you know, I was in heaven because it was like, wow, now I, it's actually okay to be doing that. 
<laughs> you know, I won't, right, I'm not going right. to catch shit for it anymore. It's like, I'm not here. I'm not a daydreamer here. I'm, I'm actively pursuing a life in a career, you know? And that was a huge shift for me. It was like, I was like absolutely in the place that I had always wanted to be. And so I do, I get frustrated because I don't see that in a lot of students and it, and I don't understand it. You know, I don't understand going to art school and not being thrilled that you're in art school, <laughs> you know, well, it's just uh, a strange thing to me. Part of that goes back to the fact, um, well, you and I both love conventions, comic cons, yeah. uh, spectrum, all anything to do with that. We, we both enjoy being there and mm-hmm. I have observed and I will take rebuttals and arguments on this because this is just my personal opinion. I think there are basically two types of people that are in these conventions. And of course, yes, there's gray areas, but number one, there are the makers and producers of whatever product, whether it's a car show Mm -hmm. or, you know, a writer's convention or a comic con, whatever it is. And then there, there are the consumers Mm -hmm. and the consumers don't want to learn. They don't want to take the time to figure out how to be a maker and to get into comics. They just want to consume the product, which is fine because that's who the makers are trying to sell to. Yeah. So they're they're both interesting people, but you can always tell the person that's not behind the table at Comic-Con that wants to be because they are the people that talk and ask questions and they take notes. They talk to people and they that's the that's the third party, I guess, that I left out at the beginning of this. And those people are really fascinating to me because they're the curious and the mildly friendly, aggressive people that yeah. say, yeah. And, and you went to Comic-Con behind the table. You were in Artist Alley for years. Uh, how yeah. did you experience that? Yeah, same thing. I mean, well, you were, I was constantly drawing, you know, I take a list and, and uh, was doing commission work through the whole con i enjoy speaking to people who love the art absolutely i was the guy that was not so great with like you know there there are comic book fans and i which i was one you know forever still am but that want to talk about you know the canon the history of all the batman stuff and the permutations and the ins and outs of all the storylines and all and i'm just like wow i just glaze over because there was a point in my development where I was a fan as a, a as a reader, you know, that I love the stories and I love the, but it was the art that especially got me. But the stories were important, you know. I mean, Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers Batman, uh, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams Batman. But there was a point too where, as much as I could enjoy the stories and and the storytelling and the art and all that when it flipped and it became about the people making the books, you know, about the, the, the craft and all the other stuff took a major backseat to that. And well, so, you were, you were looking for the mental side of it. You were looking for the mental game of where do these stories in this artwork come from? How can I become yeah. that person? Yeah. How do I get to do this? And so, you know, 
And without, but you know, that said, I mean, without those people, we can't do what we do, right? Because that's the whole point, right? Is to communicate and to get get the work out there and have someone that actually wants to look at it and read it, which is great. But those were the those were the. Uh, well, I can appreciate um, immensely, you know, that and their their love of it, and you can see the excitement that they have for it and all that, which is really great. But the people that want to come up and talk art that's when I'm awake and like, you know, they're talking about the part of it that I, that I'm really connected to. And, and they, and then I also see in them myself, right? Because I wanted that information. And when we were going to, I mean, I went to Houston con as a, you know, in junior high and high school, um, was a big deal to go to the, the convention and, you know, we'd save up money and uh, my friend Lum Edwards and I would go to these things and, and, uh, and it was all about collecting. It was all about that stuff, but man, to get the meet the people that were doing it was really important. So I, you know, and we didn't have all, like we've said before, we didn't have all the magazines and all the access to information that we have now. So that one-on-one was a really rare thing. And, uh, and it, and it meant the world to me. And obviously that changed my life because of getting to, you know, going to see, uh, see Jeff and like having that experience and all of a sudden it opens up this whole other world. So I know how important it is. And so those are the people that where I get, I, I, I'll like drop everything and invest time and sit and chat and, and I'll sit and chat with anybody. But if you're talking about actually connecting and like being totally part of that conversation, we, you know, with everything, that's the, the, that's the stuff that, that matters to me, you know, because it's about the work, you know, not, and not even necessarily about my work, but about the work, you know, the craft and all that kind of stuff. And those are the, the, the most interesting conversations in a lot of ways, because not everybody does it the same way. And, and you learn things about maybe why you do it or things that maybe you should be doing or can do that you weren't, you know, uh, and that all that stuff's vital. Let's have a conversation about color and maybe to people that are still struggling with it. Well, I guess we all struggle with it. I will <laughs> recount how I came up with this limited palette that I used in illustration and fine art painting for most of my career doing both of those things. So I got out of school, didn't really know anything, lucked into being apprenticed by a couple of people here in Kansas City and just barely got my foot in the door doing some illustrations. But I was very inconsistent, especially with my color. I felt like "Eh, I've got some drawing ability and some composition ability. I understood lighting. I was doing my own reference, but my color was all over the place. And I thought I have to figure out what I need to do with color because I was panicking. I thought, oh my gosh, (laughs) color is so important. It's very emotional, but if your paintings aren't pretty, then you're not going to get hired to do illustration or what have you. So I the short story is I started thinking about in fourth grade where my teacher put a prism in a shaft of light coming in our window and it split it into a rainbow. 
And she said, this is all the colors of the rainbow. And I thought back to that. And then I looked at a color wheel and I thought, wow, there are only six colors on this color wheel. That's all I have to work with. There's seven colors in a rainbow because light is a Mm -hmm. additive mixture. Paint is a subtractive mixture. And we can talk about where indigo went later on. But I thought, okay, there's the primary colors, red, blue, and yellow. You mix any two of those together, you get the secondary colors. That's all. There are no more colors. There are variations on all of those, depending on the saturation and the chroma and the temperature and the hue. But you only have six colors. And I kind of thought to myself, oh, this is a lot simpler than I thought. And I divide, <laughs> I, I know, I know, but I guess I work on a fourth grade level, but I came up, I started experimenting and I tried to get the least amount of colors to work with that I could pretty much paint anything. So I came up with a blue, two reds. I couldn't find the perfect red. So I used two and a yellow and I would invite what I would call a guest color to kind of round things out. Lots of times if I was doing a certain painting, I would add another color because that was very easily controlled. That's why I ended up being able to kind of handle color was I, I had to make it simple for myself. And I know that you use a pretty, I won't call it a basic set of colors, but you continually use the same ones over and over. And that becomes your limited palette. Is that true? Well, I do now, but when I was uh, in school, well, or out right out of school, I was totally in the dark on color. Well, we um, were experiencing the same thing at the same time. Well, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, you, you like you say, oh, I was on this fourth grade level. It's like, no, not really. <laughs> you, you actually recognized something very... Uh, that I never recognized like, Oh really? There's only that many colors. Well, see that never even crossed my mind. It's like you took it to this place where you could dissect it. And like you've, you came up with a solution and you also delved into, and I know this cause I've, I've listened to your color lecture, which is amazing. And it's like, you know why it works and how it works and you know how to manipulate it to get all these things. Where, man, you know, they were trying to get us to that place in art school. And it was, they did, a, I mean, and they really did a great job. It just didn't sink in for me. I struggled with it. And it was, uh, the when I finally got like an inkling of it, this idea of complementary colors and whatnot was just from seeing it in, in, the, in nature. Uh, and actually, and again, right? recognizing it for what it was like uh walking what they called pratt beach outside the school i was on the other side of the the fence you know and walking (laughs) wait a minute pratt beach what is that well pratt institute where i was going to art school and they had this one area that was just an open space you know with grass and they called it pratt beach that's what students called it and it was getting dark and all of a sudden, the street lamps came on, street lamps. And they were these 
really orange lights and man and they were it was behind me and my shadow shot out in front of me this intense blue and i saw i was like whoa like it clicked right then and that's when i actually started to kind of figure color out even though the school you know we had this amazing uh i forget his first name though mr fazolino um was my color teacher and he was really good at it, but man, I was just not good at it, <laughs> you know, and, uh, all that color aid, those color aid paper assignments and all this stuff. And he would sit and show us how to mix. And, and it was very, I mean, it was a great class. He really got me to appreciate paint, especially, you know, it was like this, it was a sensual, like, Oh my God. He was like, you know, he would have a squeeze paint out and, he goes, okay, pick this one up, rub it between your fingers, smell it. He goes, don't you, don't you want to eat this stuff? You know, we're like, oh my God, you know, it's like a candy store. And, but color was totally intuitive again for me, you know, it's like, and it's only through teaching that I've been able to sort of say, oh, okay, now I understand aspects of it and why I've done the things I do with color when I'm painting like I can attribute it now to to a re like I can have a reason for it. You I know, think it, I I like your word. You said it was intuitive, and I know you well enough to know that that quote intuition was formed by your knowledge of looking at paintings constantly. I mean, you've talked yeah. earlier in whichever version of this podcast people are listening to you have studied these paintings and painters. So your intuition was informed by information that you gathered. And that is completely legitimate because you and I can name about 10 other people off the top of our heads that always claim that it's the, their intuition. It just looks right. I just know it's right. And there's nothing right. wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if I, if I think on it, which I've had to do as a teacher, it's like, okay, <clears throat> you know, I put that in there because, well, if I have, and it is, it's like, it's pretty simplistic. You know, if I'm using, uh, if I have a red and a painting, there's a part of me that just wants to put a green somewhere, even if it's muted, you know, just as a compliment, just to kind of get that red to vibrate or whatever. I don't know, you know, uh, or an orange with a blue. And I mean, I'll throw those complimentaries in, but I, you know, in this idea of, of color harmony, um, and temperature and all that, but it is just off the cuff when I'm painting. I mean, I really, it just feels right. And I can't ex always explain why I did. I mean, I'll even throw in a color. I'll just grab something and throw it in just to see what happens. And if it sits, if it sits comfortably, then it's like, okay, cool. Where else can I put this? You know? Um, and that was, uh, see, you're, you're like my friend, uh, Joe De Caesar. When we were in New York, he, we went to school together and then, but then he, you know, he ended up after we left school, moved around the corner from me. And so we would hang out and he would come over to my studio and, and I would have this like mound of paint tubes sitting there and <laughs> we would sit and uh, we got into like smoking pipes for a while or just this thing we would do, you know, like 
made us feel like we were artists or something. I don't know. But like we sat there and we would start talking about color and painting. And he said, uh, and man, and Joe, Joe's like you, like he, he, he knew it, you know, and he could tell you why it worked and a whole bit. And he had a very, uh, which I still is a mystery to me, but a certain way of laying out his palette that allowed him to like, you know, just cross these two different lines and he could get this beautiful, you know, rainbow and grayscale and, you know, temperature. It was just like nuts. And, uh, and when I would teach at Pratt, I, whenever it got to where I was thinking it was a good time to talk about color, I would just bring Joe in. It goes, okay, blow their minds. You know, because <laughs> what I was going to say weapon. was like, feels right. You know, that's not going to work. So he would, he would say, well, this is what I do. And he would pick out, he went through my paint and he would pick out three very distinctive colors. And he goes, this is a triad and this works because, blah, 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 you know, and I was like, Oh, <laughs> and he's like, well, what do you do? And I'm like, mm. and I would go through and I would grab a thing. man. That's a cool looking color. Okay. That's one. Here's a, that's a really cool color. I'm going to use that one too. And I would just grab colors and make them work. Right. That was sort of the, the thing to me that was fun. It's like, I'm going to take this stuff and I'm just going to make it work by, you know, make, you know, add mixing between them and try and find that, that happy place. Right. Well, that, he was like, that, that did work, George. And it's because if you use a, a very few colors and it can be random colors and you just picked out colors cause you thought they were cool. The, the nice thing is that's going to lead immediately to color harmony because each mixture you make is going to have a little bit of that other color or other colors mm -hmm. in it just shifted one way or the other. And that's harmonious and you can't help it. The palette yeah. does it for you. And that, that's what a limited palette's all about. Well, but the, <laughs> but the funny thing was Joe goes, uh-huh. He goes, but do you realize you just picked out a triad? I'm like, what? <laughs> you know? There you go. So, yeah. So, you know, I don't know. And it's, um, and sometimes I'll use a ground. I learned how to paint by using a ground. So George, explain what a ground is. What are you talking about? A ground is, uh, you're taking a color for me when I first started, it was burnt sienna and I would put a wash of it over the, the white of the canvas to kill the white was part of it. And secondly, it would also be your middle value, uh, middle being, you know, in the, in the tonal range the value range of whatever it was you were trying to paint, you know? Uh, and that color was, it did a lot of things for you. It would, it would harmonize automatically harmonize the painting. It would, because it was adding itself to every color you put in there. So it was wet and it was influencing all the other colors. Right. And it wasn't like dripping wet. It was, you know, I used very little, uh, turp on that. I mean, I would, you know, but it was it. So it was somewhat, stiff but you know and it was a transparent color you know it was uh the Windsor Newton burnt sienna excuse me it was it was more it's always been more of a transparent color that I would use as a brown so again it killed the white allowed me to when I laid a color on there I was seeing the color rather than not seeing the true color because of the white surrounding it and and that blending in of it automatically harmonized and settled it into that space I, that it acted like a color space in my mind it was like 
I'm, that when I put that color on there, it was a now it was an actual volume, a space, right? And then I was working into it, and man, it just solved so many problems. It that it just sort of did a lot of work for you. And over the years, I finally also then went off from that where I was just painting directly into white with pure color and doing my mixing on the canvas rather than on the palette. And the reason I started doing that was I just felt like there was a point and I, and I had experimented with a lot of different colors for grounds. It wasn't always just burnt sand, you know? Um, but again, it was this thing I could see in other paintings. I, it was obvious in the Jeff Jones paintings. Uh, it was obvious in, you know, Remington's and, you know, sergeants and all kinds of stuff. And I, once I had started messing with that, I start, I was seeing it everywhere. And I was like, oh man, you know, now, so it became this thing for me, like to try and figure out what was the ground they put down because that would influence, that's how they got the, you know, that's how a lot of this, the color was influenced and, and came together because of whatever ground they were using. And, but again, like I went off of that because I just felt like, yeah, it was doing a lot. It was doing a ton of stuff for me automatically. And I just sort of felt like I was being lazy by doing it, you know, that I wanted to be the one making the decisions, making the, the color decisions and, and all that. And there's another way of approaching that too, where you could, I think it's what they call tuning a palette, which is uh, you could take a color that will be the in, like the influence and add it to every color on the palette and then put it on your canvas, which is another way of working it. But, and then you can actually, you know, then you're being, uh, then you're, you're a little more in control because you're choosing how much of that color you're putting into all the other colors. But, um, but working into white was really cool because it was one I had heard that's sort of how Monet worked. He would, he would do his mixing on the canvas and put, he was putting raw color down, uh, and then mixing together. And so I did notice when I did that, that my color remained more pure, cleaner, um, and that I got a sense of air quicker, you know, uh, in the paintings themselves. Uh, it required a lot more work, which was, uh, you know, I'm fine with that. It was like, it was exciting. And, it, and I guess it came down to this idea that it wasn't autopilot. You know what I mean? Like I had to make choices and I had to see things happening and be influenced by them to get progression on the painting. And it's not that you don't do that with the ground, but it's taking care of so much that it's, it's different. You know, it was like, I knew that the color harmony would be there and, you know, and whatever else. I mean, you know, uh, working the other way forced me to like be in the now and that I like that. But now at this point now I kind of go back and forth. It's like some paintings, uh, just feel like I want to use a ground and other ones. It's like, no, I just want to start slopping color down and let's see where this thing goes, you know? total uh seat of the pants where so the ground it, i feel more ground feel more grounded <laughs> <laughs> a very bad pun thank you for that yes <laughs> well it sounds like you kind of assess what 
image you will be making that day? And is it just, are you looking toward the end result? Like, gee, I better use a ground on this or, Hey, let's just see what happens on this white. Or is it your mood or is it the end result you're looking at? Is it the lighting? Is it the palette of whether it's going to be a high key or low key image? What makes you decide to use a ground or not? Yeah, I guess it's like it, it's sort of twofold. It's the mood, you know, uh, well, your I mood mean, or the mood of the image that you want or yeah, or both okay. actually, because like, yeah, my mood where I'm like, well, you know, uh, I really want to paint. Uh, yeah, it's, that's a weird one because the mood of the, the, the ground can totally affect the mood and uh, everything. Well, I mean, but you know, every painting that I do is uh, mood is vital is probably more important to me than everything else. You know, I'm, I'm definitely trying to get a mood out of the thing. I'm trying to evoke um, an emotional response from the viewer. Right. Through color and value. And it's interesting, too, because the content is it has less to do with the content. The content can help, I guess. But if that's not the the main consideration, it's the it is this overwhelming sense of mood and light, I guess, you know, the value tonally of light. Yeah, like I'm doing these uh, back and forth a little bit on some of the Morocco paintings. And those are weird in the sense that they're very influenced by my love of Sargent and Brangwen, Frank Brangwen and uh, Arthur Melville and that stuff, you know, the, the painters who've gone there and done stuff. And it's like, okay, <clears throat> so like Brang, I'm in this big Brangwen mood when I'm, when I'm really thinking of Morocco for oils and those are like, very moody they're very they're darker in a way and almost uh his are almost uh decorative in some ways you know but the ground can really evoke that that stuff because it's sort of the way he worked like i get that feeling and then i would do glazes and stuff you know to knock things around whereas other things uh it is there's a sense of of energy that comes from working on the white and throwing down straight out of the tube. I mean, I'll squeeze a tube on the on the board and get out the big, you know, trial the putty knife and like just like mash it and drag it, you know, and see. And it's all about reaction, you know. It's all reactive. I'll and I'll just throw stuff on. I mean, I may have a, a painting going really well, and it's like, well, what if I drag, you know? Like there's a color that I love is this Persian rose uh, from Williamsburg. What if I squeeze some of that out and drag it across the the head of this figure that I'm working on? What you know, just totally random, wacky. You know, let's just see what happens. And then, you know, then you go <laughs> then you go to Baron's story, and it's like, okay, solve for X. I just did this goofy thing that makes absolutely no sense. Now solve for that. You know, and it forces me to it's to do things that are totally out of the wheelhouse. You know, it's like I've got well, to like figure you, it out. you and I are both uh, big fans of Richard Diebenkorn, and I hope listeners yeah. are too. And when he would get into especially a compositional problem and a lot of times a color problem, 
he always had his secret weapon in his studio. He had a big gallon paint can of pink, just this really bright pink. And he'd get stuck on a painting. I can't solve the problem. I, I can't see what's wrong, but I know it's not correct. And he would get this pink paint and he would paint a big rectangle of pink somewhere, anywhere on this painting. And he, he would destroy it. He would just like completely screw it up. But by doing that, this is like you squirting all the tubes of paint out earlier we talked about. He would say, oh, yeah, now I, oh, now I got to fix that. You know, that's, yeah. a, can't sell that painting. That's not going to work. So then he, he like you said, uh, Baron referred to solve for X. He would yeah. screw it up so much that then he could start fixing that problem. And then the other problems would become more evident. And that's a weird yeah thing but you you do it all the time well and it's funny too because that was actually something that baron taught um he said you know when he would when he would get into a fix he would do something totally out the just out the window like take a bottle of ink and just dump it all over the piece and then then he said solve for x okay so cleaning up your even if all you're doing is cleaning up the mess that's forward movement you know, and it takes your mind off of the other problem, which means that the, the unconscious is now working on that. And you're dealing on the, on the forefront, the forebrain with, I had to clean up this mess, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it, it, it unleashed your, your subconscious to kind of say, okay, cool. I can take over on this now you know, and deal with it. And it always, it it always is, at least from my standpoint, it always is a mental game. And I think each of us as artists or illustrators or whatever we do, there's always that rare occasion, maybe three times in my life where a painting will do what I call, it will do itself. I just stay out of the way. And then I think back and I look at it and I'm like, how did I do that? Where did, yeah. where did that come from? How come I can't do that every time? That's very yeah. rare. The other 99% of the time is, you know, beating your way through a composition, yeah. adding sweat. color value. Yeah. Sweat equity for sure. Yeah. <laughs> sweat equity. I like that. It's like, yeah, totally. And in, in those instances too, when it just happens, it's like, uh, you know, like pouring glass, pouring water out of a glass, right? <clears throat> it just does. And those are generally like the most amazing paintings too, you know, where you're kind of like, damn, yeah, why can't I do that more often? You know, where did, where did that come from? I had very little to do with this. Um, and that's part of that getting out of your own way, you know? Oh, and it always feels good. And then you, and it's, it's a, a very good positive thing. And then you start thinking like, wow, that's, that's in me somewhere. What was I mm-hmm. thinking? How did I start this? What process was I going through? And of course, that's a, a dangerous path to try to deconstruct, yeah. but I'm sure people can do it. Well, and that goes to that idea that, you know, why do you keep doing it for those moments? Because that's such a great feeling, you know, and it's like, wow, I want that again. You know, <laughs> that's, the you know, that that visceral sort of like joy and surprise at times too we're like man where did that come from that's 
man, that's the whole point, you know. Um, when you satisfy yourself, it's so rare, you know, but it's the thing that keeps me wanting to do it, you know, the discovery and the, and then that when you, when you hit it, it's like, man, that can't be beat, you know, that's ultimate. 